Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Uh, you know, it's sad in America today for us black Americans, African Americans that live the number one pandemic. There are two pandemics that we're dealing with today. The first one is the original sin of America, and that's discrimination, racism, discrimination coming out of slavery. And the second is COVID-19, and they're so, so similar in terms of how they affect the black and brown communities, the marginalized communities in the United States of America. And today we have... Dr. Martin Lowry, who has been with the Rural Electric Cooperative, and he's recently retired from that, but he's working as the U.S. representative of the International Cooperative Alliance, and he's here to talk about these things with us this morning. Good morning, Martin. How are you doing? Good morning, Vernon. I'm doing great. It's great to be on again. Appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I'd like to just really get right into the co-ops. One of the reasons I like co-ops are its values and principles. And so like it's like the first question for you, Dr. Lowry, I'd like to use your philosophy here. How can these principles and values help us with this pandemic that has been shown through George Floyd, murder, Derek Shaven putting his knee on his neck and another way of lynching black man. How can co-ops help with this problem? Well, first of all, I'd like to agree with you that we have two pandemics. I would also say that the racist pandemic, which has been with us throughout our history, is shared around the world. If you think about persecution of minorities. So what we're seeing is that the protest against this kind of structural violence uh, in the United States is being picked up around the world. There have been there have been demonstrations in London and Paris and and Berlin and so on. So I, I think you're absolutely right that we're dealing with two at the same time. The cooperative model and the cooperative values in particular, I believe, speak directly to the solutions. Let me let me talk quickly about the cooperative values. They, they're self-help self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. But perhaps even more important, very specifically adopted by the global cooperative movement are the ethical values of honesty. Can I say those? Can I say those? Because I like them. <laughs> you yeah. may. Honesty, you may. honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for one another. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You've got it. Now, those ring so true. In thinking that we might be talking about this uh, very directly, I wanted to bring to the attention of your listeners something that the global cooperative movement has done just within the past year. We had our annual General Assembly in Kigali, Rwanda, uh, late, late last year. And, uh, and, and right there you have a very interesting circumstance, which is we are in Rwanda, which is still working toward the post-genocide 
society that they hope will bring economic growth to Rwanda. And cooperatives are playing a very central role in local economic development in Rwanda. And the effort is to bring peace. And as a result of that, we the General Assembly voted on a declaration on positive peace, which has now been adopted by the global cooperative movement. And I'll be very brief on this, but I think it's very important in answering your question. This is really about structural violence. And so the pandemic of racism, as it's talked about today and has been for years, is a structural problem in society that has to be addressed. And, and it has to be addressed through institutional change. The idea of positive peace is that you remove structural violence through local, cooperative, and collaborative action. So, Vernon, if you'll allow me, I'm going to read two sentences from that Declaration of Positive Peace that I think ring absolutely true. The first is this. Conflicts derive from unmet human needs and aspirations, whereas cooperatives have the mission to respond to human needs and aspirations, including aspirations for a better future, more inclusive, more sustainable, more participative, and more prosperous for all. The second sentence is this. The cooperative movement cooperates to find equitable and just ways to solve problems in a sustainable and democratic manner, thus contributing to prevent violence and hatred. So that's wow. the philosophical level of the attempt by the global cooperative movement to say we have to remove structural impediments to equality and, and equity. And I think that the opportunity in the United States is to, in fact, demonstrate that that is possible through exactly what you love to recite, those ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. We can talk about many examples of where cooperatives have made a significant difference in a community, but on the general issue of do cooperatives have the opportunity and the capability to respond to the racial pandemic, my answer is a thousand percent yes. So have the opportunity and the capability. I would also right. say uh, from the cooperators, Martin, I've been doing this show, as you know, six and a half years. Uh, Pat Thornton, the producer, Alonzo, who is our engineer, we've all been working as a team here to get this done, and we brought on Justin Frank. So in these six and a half years, everybody I've interviewed in this cooperative movement, and most have been in the U.S., there's been some that's in this international global world, particularly with the International Cooperative Alliance. Everybody loves what they're doing, and the main reason they love what they're doing is because they're helping people. They're in a co-op helping solving some community problems. So I would say not only do we have the opportunity, but also co-ops have the desire to solve this kind of a problem. It's in the as Dame Pauline Green, who was the president of of uh, the International Cooperative Alliance, says, it's in the DNA of co-ops. It's supporting, working, collaborative. The two things that you said. I would like for you to read those again. I'd like to get those. Those were awesome in this global peace, positive uh, peace. Those two, those two principles? Yes. Or, or if, meaning the con how conflict uh, can be reduced? Yes. Yes, on the Declaration they, of Positive Peace. Uh, right. So co conflicts, der conflicts derive from unmet human needs and aspirations, whereas cooperatives have the mission to respond to human needs and aspirations, including aspirations for a better future, 
more inclusive, more sustainable, more participative, and more prosperous for all. The cooperative movement cooperates to find equitable and just ways to solve problems in a sustainable and democratic manner, thus contributing to prevent violence and hatred. Boy, if we could have those, it, saw, it, it seems like it's in the, our, in the U.S., when we talk about what the U.S. is all about, it's for, for the people. That justice is what's there and uh, what we want and what we're striving for, but we've never made it. We've never gotten it. And this is hitting it right on the head all around the world. When you say global, this is all around the world. Right. And if we look right. at the U.S. specifically on this, we're talking a lot now about First Amendment rights. The right, the right to assemble, the right to peaceful assembly, um, the right to speak uh, without uh, concern of uh, being being stifled on that. That's that's a protective First Amendment of our U.S. United States Constitution. I think when you get into the cooperative values and these ideas expressed in the Declaration of Positive Peace, you're now saying, okay, we have our First Amendment right. What do we do with that? How do we take action around that First Amendment right that is going to be productive and uh, long-term sustainable? And that's where I think we come into this idea of local ownership, local control, local conversations. And, of course, when you're talking about the local community, it's not simply about the cooperatives in the community. It's about every institution in the community and, and how do they work together. It's about local government and the role of local government. And uh, cooperatives around the world, frankly, are working on that very point. How do we build partnerships with our local governments in such a way that they provide exactly what we want to see, which is equality and equity and inclusion in that local community where we're all working together? These are the kind of goals that inspire me. I, I get excited about them. I get excited about America. I get excited about co-ops. But how do we put this into use? So let, let's go back to COVID-19. How has how has cooperatives function in other economic downturns? We talk about the Great Depression of in the 30s and the 40s, and then you talk about the Great Recession of 2006, 2007. How have co-ops worked in solving those issues or coming through those issues? So that's a great question, and I have two specific examples to give you that are different from one another. In the Great Depression – you have Franklin Roosevelt's efforts to find jobs, productive work for people, particularly around infrastructure, and that led to the creation of the Rural Electrification Administration. And the solution there was we electrify rural America through the use of cooperatives. That's the only way we will get it done, which is, in, the case, in this case, mostly local farmers and ranchers coming together to create electric cooperatives that then built that fabulous rural electric infrastructure that I've been involved in uh, my whole career. So right there you have an example of, the, of a public-private partnership, the federal government of the United States, working to build a cooperative system that is locally owned and controlled, and that system is alive and well today and providing tremendous value to local communities, particularly uh, now that we recognize, and we could talk about this later perhaps, the critical importance of high-speed broadband access, high-speed Internet access, to make sure that telemedicine and educational programs are available to everyone. But putting that aside for a second, then you move mm -hmm. forward to our financial crisis. 
And there I want to talk about credit unions. What happened during the financial crisis was that credit unions fared much, much better than banks in terms of their sustainable performance and their overall financial performance. Credit unions, of course, are owned by their members as well. And there was a movement that started in California called Move My Money, I believe was the title of it, that led to a significant increase in the number of members of credit unions. And when you when you look at any particular credit union and its mission statement, it is very much community-based and very much also has the mission of making sure that low and moderate income people are served. So in both cases, the electrification of America and the growth of credit unions in America, you're seeing a very strong value-based approach to serving the unserved and the underserved. And that's certainly based on the conversation we've had thus far this morning, very critically important to the future of our country. And getting rid of having this positive peace and getting rid of structural violence is serving the unserved. You're absolutely correct. The Great Depression got really electric, but you had all these kinds of things that he did. It was the CC camps that my father would tell me about to get people. It was right here outside of D.C. is Greenbelt, which is 1,500 right. homes, right. a co-op, seven co-ops inside of Greenbelt, Maryland. So he did a lot of things with co-ops, and my sense is, which we'll get to after the break. We're going to go to our first break here in a minute. But he took used co-ops to come out of the Great Depression. And I think we're going to have to use co-ops to come out of this particular recession with higher unemployment than we did in the Great Depression. So we'll come back to this and talk about it on the other end. Martin, as always, I really enjoy what you bring uh, to the conversation, and so I'm looking forward to the rest of this. Uh, But we're going to take our, our first break, and then we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, I'm talking to Dr. Martin Lowry this morning, uh, who has spent his career working in the National Rural Electric Cooperatives. And uh, just real quick, Dr. Lowry, I have it from previous conversations that the rural electric that was put in during the Great Recession to help put electricity in rural areas, particularly for farms. And you've told me that 75% of the land mass of the U.S. is electrified or brought in electricity by these co-ops that are owned by the communities of people in the community. Is that correct? Yes, we've we've, uh, looked at that data a little closer since we last talked, and I would say we're probably more in the range of 60%, but it's still uh, amazing coverage across the whole country. And we touch 80% of the counties in the United States. That may be even, even a more important statistic. Um, and, and, yes, that's that's what is referred to as area coverage, if you go back to the beginnings of the program, that no one in America should be without uh, access to electricity. And that brings up an interesting point that um, – your listeners may be interested in because we've we've had the Navajo Nation uh, 
pretty publicly talked about today in terms of the pandemic and the consequences uh, for people on the Navajo Nation reservation. Uh, it is of note that many of those uh, people do not have access to electricity and they do not have local water system. They have to bring water in in large tanks. And one can only imagine that the consequences of the pandemic, particularly on the elders, and of course within Native American culture, elders are so critical to the social fabric continuity. It's an issue that really should be addressed as an infrastructure issue. And I know my, my organization and others have been talking about how to how to resolve that. Here we are in 2020 in a portion of this country. Uh, actually, the, the nation is pretty much the size of West Virginia, um, still is lacking in electrification. I'm glad you put, I didn't have it. I'm from West Virginia, so maybe that's why you used that state. But I didn't know it was that big. I knew it was big, and I'm shocked, uh, consistently shocked of how badly we treat our natives, uh, Native Americans. We talk about blacks and browns or reds, if you will, but anybody that's marginalized and Native Americans are terribly marginalized. So that's sort of not our original sin. Slavery is, or is it the original sin of how we, when did the, Tears of tra the trail of tears happen, and if they don't have electricity and running water, that means that they must have outhouses, which I remember as a kid, because you don't have anything to flush the, the toilets down, or take showers in, or wash your hands. They say wash your hands. If you don't have water, how do you continue to wash your hands and so forth? That's just major issues. Fair point. Absolutely. I, I would like to offer something else based on what we've been talking about uh, so far, which I'm very uh, proud to talk about, and that is that your sponsor is the National Cooperative Bank. And I just finished my second term on, on the bank board, and um, uh, I'm no longer on the board. I'm a former chair of the board. Uh, the CEO, Chuck Snyder, has sent an internal email to his employees that is related to the racist pandemic. And uh, with his permission, I'd like to quote from that wonderful statement. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you went from this terrible, terrible stat that the Navajo Nation doesn't have electricity or water. Uh, so let's talk about something positive, what, what Chuck sent out to his employees. Here's what Chuck Snyder, CEO of the National Cooperative Bank, has said. We can no longer rely solely on the public policy, corporate, and philanthropic solutions to the problems that we're facing. The National Cooperative Bank can provide leadership by providing access to jobs, education, healthy foods, housing, and health care. As a bank built on principle with the mission to work with low- and moderate-income communities, we already do more than most, and I am committed to doing even more. I wanted to read that because it's an example of the can-do attitude that I'm seeing around the country uh, with cooperatives. And I think we're going to see even more and more of that strong, positive cooperative response um, to what we're facing as a society and the fact that the social fabric, the social compact is basically ripped apart. And, and it's going to be it's going to take all of us to really begin to solve that permanently so 
he talked about jobs, healthy foods, health care, and those things. So let me let me just quickly give the four sectors and how the National Co-op Bank affect all of these four sectors. So we have the first sector is uh, if the if the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. So you can have any particular business in the U.S. be a worker co-op, owned and controlled by the employees. If it's owned and controlled by the consumers, the people that uses the products and services, it's called a consumer co-op. And that's you've already talked about the rural electric. The people that use the electricity own the business. They they elect the board of directors, and the board of directors set the policy and so forth. But the same thing for credit unions, which you already mentioned, that the people that deposit their money into the credit unions own those credit unions, and they elect the board of directors and so forth. So those are your consumer co-ops. And then there's a there's a consumer co-op, uh, a health clinic, uh, Martin, in, in Madison, Wisconsin, that is owned and controlled by the patients. So those patients elect the board, and they set policies. So those are your consumer co-ops. And then the other two, you find mainly around farming, that the farmers would come together and they would create a business that would buy the goods and services, the goods that they need, and that could be their seed or fertilizers, and it's called a purchasing co-op. In D.C., we have a consumer purchasing alliance that was set up for nonprofits, uh, charter schools, churches, to help buy the things that they need to get a lower price and a better quality. On the other end of the uh, spectrum for farmers is a marketing co-op, or it's also called a producer co-op, and these Farmers would create a business, sell their goods to, and then the, this business then would find other markets. So farmers in Wisconsin, their milk products may go into cheese, and then it's sold in California and in New York that that individual farmer couldn't make those markets. So that's a marketing co-op. And now artists are beginning to use this. Other people are beginning to use the purchasing co-op and the um, – Marketing co-op. I have a, I have a group in Pittsburgh, Martin, black women that have come together. They're artists. Some do clothes, some do painting, some do jewelry, woodworking, and they've come together and opened up a storefront. It's called Ujama. Excellent, excellent products at a very, very reasonable price. I thought it was too cheap. I didn't want to say that to them, but I really enjoyed their their products and talking to them. And they manned that store. Any individual artist could not come together, perhaps, and have the wherewithal to, to have a store and fund it and have it operating, but they are able to do it. So it functions both as a purchasing co-op and a marketing co-op. And, and Martin, I've heard of co-ops where the musicians come together, and I know you are a jazz guitarist, so that musicians will come together and they'll form a co-op because, as you know, in that business, some you may have a gig this week, but you may not have another one until next month, and they pool their resources and flatten out the income that they will share in their resources. And sometimes they're talking about getting studios together and they're getting housing together, so they're using this co-op model in a lot of different kinds of ways. So I just wanted people to understand those four as we continue to talk about. We talked about what co-ops have done coming out of the Great Depression you begin to talk about what co-ops are doing now. And that's what I want to get, spend more time on is what are co-ops, what can they do to help us come out of this particular, I'm talking about the COVID a pandemic, but we also hit on this racist, racism, 
pandemic. But what what can co-ops do to come out of this, and what are we doing to get out of this? So let me let me first kind of put a wrap around your um, talking about the different types of cooperatives. If you look at um, ICA.coop, you find the statement of cooperative identity, which was finalized back in 1995, 25 years ago, to try to bring the sense of how all these sectors come together. What do they have in common? And part of it is the principles and part of it is the values that we've talked about. But most interestingly, there is also a specific definition of a cooperative. It's an association of people who come together voluntarily to meet their economic, social, and cultural and aspirational needs through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. So whether you're a farmer who needs a brand to market your goods, whether you're a musician, whether you're a member of an electric cooperative or a credit union, you are part of an autonomous association of persons who unite voluntarily to meet their common economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations, being jointly owned and democratically controlled. And it's an enterprise. It's a business. So thinking, thinking about that, you can use that model for any purpose as long as you wish other people to be involved with you on a voluntary basis. We're going to come back and talk about that some more, Martin, but we've got to take our second break right now in this definition of co-ops. I'm glad you brought that up. Jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise that come together to meet their economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that dial. We have Martin Lowry, and we're going to talk more about these two pandemics. We'll be right back. News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Martin Lowry on the phone with us this morning. We've been talking about what is happening in the global or internationally as terms of co-ops and how we uh, fight the pandemic of racism uh, around the world. And we began to talk about what co-ops have done in previous economic downturns, like the Great Depression, Great Recession. And now we're beginning to focus on what co-ops can do to get us out of this current uh, recession, more unemployment than what was in the Great Depression. But before, I just want to give a shout-out to the National Co-op Bank, because Dr. Lowry has already mentioned the statement that Chuck Snyder, the president of bank, has said, but they have been our partner. They have been our supporter, both financially and given us words of wisdom on what to do and what to say and how to talk and what's happening in the co-op world. They've just been a great, great partner. And NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So, uh, Dr. Lowry, I'd like for you to, to go continue to talk about what we, what co-ops are doing to to get us on the other end of this. And if you have in front of you what the rest of that letter that Chuck says, the two or three things that they're going to be doing to set up money to solve this, help solve this first great recession, this original sin of racism and discrimination. So what are some of the things that co-ops are doing to get us through this? 
So the immediate situation is to deal with the economic hemorrhaging and how people are are hurting so badly around the country. Uh, and um, one of the things that electric cooperatives are doing is is quite amazing to me, and I'm I'm so proud of it. There's an estimate that loss of electric load uh, from um, the loss of of commerce, the loss of industries, um, you know, schools uh, are not operating right now, and the unpaid bills, the un- the inability of people to literally pay their electric bill. It's estimated that through 2022, the losses are going to be $10 billion, billion with a B. Even though that's the case, the electric cooperatives are doing things like returning security deposits to the member so they can pay their bill or accelerating and increasing capital credit retirements. And for those in your audience that would not be familiar with that, when you're a member of a cooperative, your patronage of that cooperative allows you to accumulate uh, what are called capital credits or patronage capital. That is used so that's your share. Capital. That's your share of the profit. Right. So the the profit margins are allocated to individuals based upon their usage. Now they're not immediately returned. They're used for working capital, but they are accumulated in the accounts. So the board. So you're saying to me, I'm sorry. You're telling me it's like I play Pepco here, and in Pepco, when I make a payment to them, whatever the profit they get, they would give back to me in terms of capital. Now they're giving that back to. That sounds almost impossible. Well, it's it's Talk a cooperative me. model, and it does take some time to understand. But that is in fact the way it works. That that your equity in the cooperative is actually the member's equity. Now, it's the decision of the board as to when to retire some of that equity because you have to make sure you have sufficient working capital in the co-op. So what's happening now is that boards of directors are looking at the situation for their electric members and realizing that if they can't pay the bill, they're in real financial trouble. And so they're looking at accelerating the return of, of those capital credits. And as I said, also looking at returning security deposits. And as a part of the CARES Act at the federal level, the cooperatives lobbied for a $900 million increase in the low-income heating energy assistance program. That's a program that is really needed in the wintertime for people who have a hard time paying their electric bill and you don't want them freezing in the dark. So a $900 million increase for the low-income heating energy assistance program. And then just for fun, I want to mention that there's a co-op in Wisconsin that decided to go ahead and hold its annual meeting in person. And what they did was do a drive-up annual meeting, and people actually voted on resolutions by honking their horns. So <laughs> I just think that that's a, that's a fun one. So that's, that's now, a rural electric in Wisconsin Yes, that right, did that? Right. Okay. <laughs> so the other piece of this is longer term, and, and that gets into the question of what is the future of work? How do we ensure that workers are treated with dignity? as we try to find new ways to think about productivity in this country and, frankly, over the, over the whole world. And a lot of questions to be asked there. How many people will be going back to an office building to work? How many people will be working uh, in a telecommuting mode? How much will digital platforms change the character of supply and demand transactions? How are we going to deal with the future of teaching? And, and how schools are going to be able to protect uh, against the consequences of the pandemic. How will healthcare function? 
future. And all of that is going to require uh, broadband, high-speed Internet access. And there, cooperatives are already playing a major role, and it's telephone cooperatives, telecommunications cooperatives, agricultural cooperatives, electric cooperatives, all looking at the question of broadband. And the other morning, Congressman Jim Clyburn was on Morning Cable Show, and he was on Morning he Joe. Said, it was on Morning Joe, right, MSNBC. And he said, quite surprising to me, that broadband is the next greatest thing. And he went on to explain what he meant by that, which is that in the 40s, in the 30s and 40s, there was, there was a quote from a farmer in Tennessee who said, to have the love in God, of God in your heart is the greatest thing. The next greatest thing is to have electricity in your home. And uh, Congressman Clyburn has been a very strong supporter of cooperatives uh, throughout his, his career. And he went on to say, so the next greatest thing is high-speed broadband, and we have to have it. And if you think about what's happening now with the need to communicate with a physician or a nurse through telehealth, with the ability of kids to continue to do their schoolwork through the Internet, it's absolutely essential that we have it. And so last week, uh, the CEO of Land Lakes, which is one of the agricultural cooperatives that you talked about, the farmer cooperative, farmer-owned, uh, CEO of Land Lakes, Beth Ford, was asked in an interview with The Washington Post, what is the most urgent priority in rural America today? She said high-speed broadband. It's absolutely essential. And, it, and it's so obvious now when you realize that if you do not have Internet in your home, how do you communicate with healthcare providers? How do you communicate? How do your kids deal with the fact that they have to continue, continue their education? So it was great to hear Congressman Clyburn say that. And also, I, I have to quote uh, the current CEO of uh, NRECA, Jim Matheson, if I may. Broadband access mm -hmm. is the great equalizer. It enables a virtual workforce, distance learning, and telemedicine, and connects local communities to the global economy. So you think about that, we are likely to continue to have a virtual workforce in a much larger scale than we had before the pandemic, that is the um, right. COVID-19. We are likely to see distance learning as a permanent capacity of schools, elementary, high, and college, meaning there will be much more done online. And telemedicine is proving to be absolutely essential to address the pandemic. So many people are only going to be able to communicate today, right now, with their physician or nurse through a high-speed internet connection. So the pandemic has proven the case that Every person in this country has to have access to high-speed broadband Internet. It's, it's, it's essential to their survival, frankly, and we need to accelerate that process. And there are many, many partners there who are working very hard at this point. And one of the immediate solutions is free Wi-Fi. So for those cooperatives, whether they're agricultural or electric or telephone, who already have a capacity to provide Wi-Fi, they are setting up temporary hotspots in parking lots associated with churches, associated with community centers. So if you need to talk to your doctor, you drive to the parking place and you've got 
high-speed Wi-Fi access for free. And, and that's, okay. that's, the that's the emergency side of it. We need to deal with the long-term unserved and underserved side of it. And um, I think it will, in fact, strongly influence how the nature of work changes. And may I then go back to your comment about artisans and musicians and freelancers? I want to I want to highlight what you just said because broadband is so important, and I did not even realize. I cannot even imagine using broadband. It's I don't know. It's like using electricity or having water in the house. It just becomes so natural to have it that I cannot even imagine not having it or somebody. I think it was nine hundred thousand students don't will not get education this year because they don't have broadband in their homes. It's some huge. Let me give you the statistic on that. Six okay. million households, six million households in America today do not have any high-speed Internet capability. Okay. And that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole household. Yeah. So it's hard to even imagine not having it. So getting in there, and one of the things that you're saying to me is, or to the audience, is the rural electric co-ops, they, in the 30s and 40s, how many rural electric co-ops are there? Approximately 900. So these 900 businesses provide electricity for 60% of the land mass and 80% of the counties in the United States. Uh, now they're taking up, I know some have already done it, where they put in broadband in their communities and provided for their homeowners, their members, and more and more are doing that and looking for ways of providing it for free. For all of the needs that you're talking about, it'd be harder to do uh, your virtual work out of a parking lot. I guess one could drive there and work out of their car or truck or whatever. But doing school work, and particularly talking to your doctor, I've been doing that recently, and it works. It's good. Uh, so this this is one way for the future to so it make it better for everyday people. Because as you know. Research said that 47% of Americans, and I just rounded to 50, half of Americans would not have $400 if they had an emergency. That is such an alarming statistic, and 6 million households don't have broadband. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's alarming kind of stats that co-ops can come in and help to fill that. So, okay, you could talk more about that, sir. Just briefly to uh, on that, there are a couple of more things to say there. One is that... Uh we need the same public-private partnership, and, and what's moving ahead now is uh, uh, a Senate and, uh, and, and House agreement. They have passed a, uh, an act called the Broadband Data Act, and what that's about is finally, once and for all, mapping out the problem, meaning every provider of telecommunication services has to show exactly where they are not serving and where they are serving in less than the capacity that's needed for high speed. And with that map, you then have the opportunity for multiple players, not just co-ops, to be involved in solving that problem long term. The, the free Wi-Fi is an emergency situation for the short term. The longer term is going to require this public-private partnership. So the Broadband Data Act has passed Congress, and it's going to be an FCC program, Federal Communications Commission, that will identify and map out those areas of the unserved and underserved uh, for the future.
So we've got to take our final break. The hour goes by very quick when I'm talking to you, Martin, because you have such great information. So we're going to come back in this last segment and talk more about what co-ops can do to help us get to, through these two pandemics in a better way so we have a chance of meeting the uh, what America was, was created for and what the definition of cooperatives are. But we'll be right back. News Talk Station. Information is power. This is why the national. Uh, this is why WL is a great partner and have been a great partner for six and a half years. And also, I talked about Chuck Snyder, the president of the National Cooperative Bank, who has been just magnificent partner. And we have uh, Dr. Martin Lowry on on the phone with us this morning, and he was the chair of the board of the National Cooperative Bank. We're talking about, Dr. Lowry, what are some of the things that co-ops can do to help us on the other end of this pandemic? What I'm looking at, I don't want the old norm. I don't want to go back to what it was like in the past, uh, but because of all of the reasons of the ills of uh, being black, brown, or or native in this country. So what are some of the things that we can do and co-ops can do to help us create a new norm? Thank you for that question. Um, Earlier on, you had suggested that the two pandemics have a lot in common. And it's because they are disproportionately affecting people of color. uh, And they are both extraordinarily critical that we address with the full powers that we have as human beings. I want to, within that context, talk about principle number one for cooperatives, which is titled voluntary and open membership. But it's the detail of that definition of principle one that's so important. And let me read it. Cooperatives are voluntary organizations open to all persons able to use their services and willing to accept the responsibilities of membership without gender, social, racial, political, or religious discrimination. It's the last part of that sentence that's so important. Without gender, social, racial, political, or religious discrimination. So we see that in both pandemics, there's discriminatory outcomes. So we need to become an inclusive society. And inclusion is a critically important issue for us. We would claim historically that the United States has been an inclusive society, and that would be a false claim, as becomes Mm -hmm. clear. Uh, today, very clear today. Yet we are a, a democratic republic for whom the founding fathers expressed very similar sentiments about being an inclusive society. I think we are now at the point of demonstrating that that is indeed not only possible in the United States, but absolutely crucial to our survival as a democratic republic. So cooperatives, because of the very nature of of who they are and principle number one, no gender discrimination, no social discrimination, no racial discrimination, no political discrimination, no religious discrimination, are ideal models to begin to think differently about a new norm. And that new norm is about equity. It's about inclusion. 
It's about accepting the diversity among us as being a positive as opposed to a negative. So it really doesn't matter whether it's a digital cooperative that's helping uh, remote workers, a healthcare cooperative, an electric cooperative, a farmer cooperative. That principle still directly applies to society as a whole. So the social fabric of our country is broken. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown where it's broken in terms of the income inequality, the racial inequality. And the cooperative model has the distinct opportunity of being able to talk directly to that because it's a it's a self-help model, which means we as American citizens need to think about one another as brothers and sisters. It's amazing to me how many conversations have taken place regarding both pandemics that have to do with phrases that would have been considered a little bit too soft in the past, like <laughs> kindness, kindness and caring and loving and believing in one another. And that, to me, is an indication of where our society is likely to go, and it needs a push to get there. The most common phrase I've heard or word I've heard when people of all types are being asked, what do you think should happen out of this situation? And now it's both situations. The word gratitude comes forward. Mm. We need to be more grateful for what we have. Gratitude is critical. And gratitude is not something that's practiced by many people. Um, and those that do, I find amazing. Um, they'll send you that handwritten thank you, or they'll go out of their way to remind you of something that you might have done that they, they appreciated. Uh, and, and they do it quite naturally. And I think we all can learn from that. There's a, there's a behavior modification that's needed here. And that behavior modification starts with directly addressing ourselves a society that wants to get better, that, that wants to truly believe in inclusion and in the importance of embracing our diversity, unity in our diversity. And, and again, in everything I've said here, the cooperative model, the cooperative way of doing business is perfectly suited for that kind of thinking. Now, specifically, where do we go? There's a lot of conversation now about the idea that digital platforms can be cooperatively owned and benefit those who are, are using them. And so that's one area that a lot of exploration is being done in right now. For the future of social media, to what extent could the cooperative model make sense that the users are, are the owners? One question that uh, my, my good friend Michael Peck will always ask is, who, who owns it? Who owns this particular business? Um, I'd like to know that before I do business with that that group. Um, Land of Lakes, I mentioned, uh, is a farmer cooperative. Uh, uh, Cabot Creamery is an example, too. Organic Valley. Just focusing on Land of Lakes, um, the idea that you're buying butter in the store and you don't know that Land of Lakes is farmer-owned, according to Beth Ford, the CEO, is a major marketing mistake for Land O'Lakes. That their data shows that if you know that Land O'Lakes is farmer owned and the farmer himself or herself is benefiting, and this is the family farmer, this is a small family farm, is benefiting from your purchase, 
are you more likely to buy that product? The answer is yes. Now, think of that in, in the long term about how what our purchasing decisions are and how many, many people now are talking about being more local. Well, let's stay with agriculture for a minute. What's happening with the processing plants is partly due to the fact that they've concentrated their four major processing plants. So what happened in Iowa perhaps was inevitable when you think about the the supply chain going into very, very large plants that are assembly lines that have the single purpose of scale, of achieving scale in order to address very large markets. Wouldn't it be possible to begin to think about more localized processing as happened in the past with the co-op business being the processing plant, the farmers own that plant or that Land O'Lakes, I can't tell Land O'Lakes how to do the business, but how, how we might want to see Land O'Lakes processing maintain its sense of being more regional and local than some of the for-profit operations that are so heavily concentrated with the consequences that we've seen. Yeah, it's always been a question of what happened if the employees own those meatpacking plants or if the employees own the hospitals, particularly rural hospitals is going under, if the employees own the airlines, what different policies would be there? Would there have been enough PPEs? Would there, would the, um, the process, as, as these meat packing plants came back, what would the employees have done to make sure that they and their families were safe against COVID? Not to mention creating wealth. They had a chance to share in that profit. Like you say, you've given us the example with the electric co-ops being able to create capital and now use it now that they need it. It's phenomenal. Martin, we only have another minute left, and I'd like for to let to let you end this. You have the last word. What would you like to leave people with? I would like to leave people with the idea that if you embrace the cooperative way of doing business, you are embracing a major solution to the toughest problems we have seen in our lifetime and the toughest we are ever likely to see if we can begin to live through a value system that values life above anything else and celebrates what a great thing it is to be a human being when we are giving back when we are working together, and frankly, when we are community. All of our lives will be very enriched if we can achieve that. And I believe we can, not just through cooperatives themselves, but through the role of cooperatives in relationship to other public and private partners who have the same beliefs and values. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it for you taking your time out. Everybody out there, Martin, please. Great. Thank you. Please live cooperatively. Let's solve this problem. These two pandemics. Have a great week. Your news talk station. 